Hello and welcome to Mega City Book Club, the podcast all about the galaxy's greatest comics. I'm Eamon Clark, and live from Wellington, New Zealand, um, from the Where Eagles Dare podcast, it's Peter Adamson. Peter, welcome back. Thank you, Eamon. Hello. Calling in from the Eagles' Nest with the votes of the New Zealand jury. Yes, um, as well as the, uh, the the grim dark basement of King's Reach Tower, of course, on behalf of Garson McNasty. Oh, absolutely, as we'll be talking about him. Um, how are things, Dad, in Wellington? You must be sort of drifting into winter while we're sort of starting to get sweltering and hot here. Yes, I saw some footage, if this isn't going to date the podcast episode too much, um, of, of Cornwall today for the G whatever it is now, and it was looking absolutely tropical. Um, yes. Here in Wellington, it's, it's almost a dark and stormy night tonight, which seems fitting. That so, seems uh, appropriate, doesn't it? Yeah. So it's a... But it's a little over two years since we last spoke um, when we did the first volume of The 13th Floor. That's not, not too much of a surprise. What are we talking about today? We are talking about volume two of The 13th Floor, once again by the same creators, um, but just a few little shifts in the story. So facts and figures. This is a rebellion trade uh, that came out in 2020 during lockdown. So I've got the paperback version. What have you got down there? I have the digital at a very affordable price and very happy for it. <laughs> Excellent. And there was, I believe, uh, a hardcover web shop exclusive, I think, for this one as well. Reprinting stories from Eagle and Scream from April 1985 to January 1986, plus there's two holiday specials at the back of the book, written by Ian Holland, which, of course, as we know from last time, is John Wagner and Alan Grant, art by Jose Ortiz, I don't know who the letterer was. Uh, we do know that the editor was Dave Hunt, although we will talk about a slight quirk of the editorship as we go along. But Dave yes, Hunt, um, he does an introduction to this book as well, which is quite nice. It, it is very nice, yeah. I was just going to say, with regards to the lettering, um, I, did, um, I did consult um, Philip, our, our friend of the pod, with regards to who the letterer may have been. So um, he's, Oh, right. He's, yeah, so he's suggesting it could be um, Jack Potter, or it may be Steve, uh, um, although Tony Jacobs is a further suggestion. So <laughs> Jack Potter was, uh, was, was quite uh, prolific through Eagle as a, as a letterer, so we could possibly start from there. But yeah, I, 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 it's very telling that they haven't identified. And that's Philip Vaughan, of course. Uh, yes, of course. Uh, now Thank of De Montford University, um, running the comics course there. Um, so... Um, give us a quick recap, Peter, from last time. What was the setup of the 13th floor? Who was Max and what was happening in Scream last time? So the 13th floor concerns Max, who is the computer custodian of Maxwell Towers. He's uh, an artificial intelligence uh, who inhabits the entire building. And uh, he has an, an interesting quirk in that uh, he has uh, created an extra floor on th on the the 13th floor, of course, uh, on Maxwell Towers. And uh, such is his dedication to the residents that if anybody falls out of line or threatens the, uh, the livelihood or the, the, the goodwill of the, uh, the, the apartment block, um, they'll go there and there he will mete out all kinds of phantasmagoric punishments on them. And uh, yeah, last volume was great. Uh, Max sort of overextended himself and ran foul of the law and had to... Uh, literally um, hide a few bodies and uh, where we come up to now is that he's been switched off or has he 
Yes, indeed. Um, so tell us, I mean, we've got a slightly new setup for this volume as a result, don't we? I mean, Max is uh, location changes. Yes, Max is uh, supposedly bought as a bit of a job lot and becomes a security computer for uh, for Pringles, which is a sort of a Harrods, Selfridges type store, I imagine. Uh, it's a huge department store with many floors, uh, somewhat lacking one specific floor. Uh, and Max gets a new controller by the name of Gwyn, and as Gwyn's setting him up, he trips something which restores Max's memory and his um, overpowered morality circuits, and uh, very quickly Max sets about recreating the 13th floor and essentially taking over the shop in uh, in, in the nicest of ways, <laughs> but certainly reasserting his uh, his previous personality. And it, for a while, he seems to make the shop run brilliantly, doesn't he? He seems very good at it. Yeah, yeah. I think um, Max is an interesting protagonist in that he's he's not content to be doing the same thing, uh, and, and as we see in this volume, he gets bored. Um, so I think the change of scene and the change of purpose is actually quite stimulating for him. Yeah, it does actually quite. You're quite right. He does seem to enjoy it for a while, and then he gets bored quite quickly and looks for a new job, doesn't he? Yep. <laughs> Which is really the core of this volume to me. It's a. It's a. I mean, do you want to go there yet, Eamon, or shall we? <laughs> yeah, let's 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 get into it a little bit. As to you know, he seems to have the store running very smoothly, but anybody who steps out of line, of course, gets the thirteenth floor treatment for a while. But then. <laughs> As we say, he sort of bores of that and changes tack. He also uh, stumbles upon a mystery of, of Pringles as well, which is, is sort of equal parts coy and equal parts camp as I read it. Um, there's an issue with the gentleman's changing uh, rooms uh, and, and, uh, and the men appear to go into them and not come out. Uh, so he's... Um, He's somewhat frustrated, Max, because he, there are some areas of the of Pringles he can't get into. So he devises a way of spying um, on it and uncovers, of all things, an MI5 um, bolt hole. Because, of course, a big because department store would be a front for MI5. <laughs> yes. Just like we have nuclear silos under our shopping malls in the States. This is where you put MI5. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Um, so... Uh, yeah, he, he, there's an intrigue, and uh, um, rather humorously, uh, Max gets his wires crossed and nearly releases a KGB agent, um, but then quickly turns things around and catches the attention of Auburn Hedges, who's the head of MI5, and there, I think, the adventures really begin with this volume. Because um, should we say that Max gets a sort of taste for spying or for the spy business? He, <laughs> that's that's where his interest sort of wanders to, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. He's a bit like an overexcited kid. He, 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 one mention of spies and sort of daring do, and and he wants to be part of it. Uh, and, and and no sort of lack of physical presence is, is going to uh, is going to stop him. He's he's got ideas. And um, Auburn is a bit of a hard case to crack himself until um, uh, Max finally sort of gets him round using his own twisted means and uh, he's, he's a, he becomes an MI5 agent which sounds ludicrous but that's ludicrous is what makes this comic strip work I think you've just got to keep pushing the envelope and God bless him um, John Wagner and uh, and Alan Grant do it and it's it's quite funny because as you say characters in the shop 
fall under Max's influence and get the 13th floor treatment. But when he comes up against Auburn Hedges, he presumably, due to being part of MI5, has got some sort of training resistance to psychological torture. He's, as you say, he's quite a tough nut to crack. But I did particularly like the episode where Max deceives him because um, he does that... I suppose it's you see this in spy genres where um, in films and books where they the he makes him think that he's been re, um released and saved mm. and then he's been brought into actual MI5 for debriefing but of course spoilers <laughs> <laughs> Max is still behind all this it's a classic sort of you know bluff or double bluff from Max I think yeah. isn't it yeah yeah those those episodes where um Auburn is fighting Max's um you know, Phantom Empire is they're they're absolutely electric, and uh, and you not only sort of see Max being frustrated, but you see this secondary character really coming alive. So I I really enjoyed their 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 jousting, and of course, yeah, you think that um, Auburn's got the upper hand, and then no, of course <laughs> he uh, he he never left the thirteenth floor. However, I I think um, they sort of do develop a grudging admiration for one another although max gets to uh to use his hypnosis and uh that gets um auburn on a mission so max essentially becomes his boss just for a little while and it has to go on like a, I guess you know like as you say on a mission on an away team um which means that max has to come up with some way of actually tra- traveling the walking world i wonder whether alan grant had something to do with this because we're not far away from the episodes of his one of his characters for Eagle Mannix, who's who's a, essentially sort of like a, a Mark One cyborg secret agent. Um, Mannix creates a miniaturized version of himself, which uh, works as a field agent as well. And this is what Max does. Uh, Max essentially has a mini Max, who is a sort of like a walkie-talkie that um, Auburn carries around as he presumably um, travels into the South China Sea to take out a, uh, a criminal overlord. Uh, and, uh, and Max is with him every step of the way, occasionally rescuing him from, um, uh, from sharks and, and crocodile-infested rivers and, and all manner of sort of pulp tropes. It's lovely. It is great stuff, yes, and it's a great adventure. And, of course, they come up with a way of having Max become mini-Max and travel on his belt as a sort of, as you say, walkie-talkie. Uh, early early personal digital assistant, I guess. Yeah. Um, <laughs> before we got Scion organisers and all that, there was mini-Max. Now... Definitely that part, Auburn Hedges is out and about. But I know on our last episode, we discussed this, Peter, because we had this sort of question of where is the 13th floor? Where do the characters go to when Max puts them through the 13th floor experience? Mm-hmm. Is it a virtual reality? Is it a parallel dimension? Or is it in possibly in volume two? Is it mostly just hypnosis from Max? Yeah, it's interesting. that This, this sort of centre of it is is auburn's real world and um to an extent the 13th floor as a concept is sort of pulled back they they, they tie it in rather neatly in, in that it becomes a bit of a sort of a boot camp for some my 5 agents and auburn himself is, is put through the paces in the same boot camp if you want to climb nets which are made out of snakes face the the uh, the, the dread of every kid who grew up in the 70s um quicksand 
um, then then Max can create those things. But then going on to the island of the Cobra, you're going to get a lot of these sorts of things as well. So, uh, yeah, sort of pulled back in influence and sort of it's almost like Auburn's real world is every bit as as outlandish as, as Max's imagination. Almost made me think, are we still being teased here? Are we still within the 13th floor? But no. Yes, he actually gets out and about, it seems. But yes, as you say, quicksand, as that famous tweet goes, you know, I thought it was going to be far more of a problem growing up than it actually turned out to be. <laughs> I thought it lurked around every corner, yeah. Um, and you mentioned quicksand and snakes because, of course, the 13th floor explores um, people's phobias. Uh, and we'll come on to Jose Ortiz's depiction of those in a moment. But, of course, if you've got a fear or a weakness or a phobia, you're going to find it, um, or at least Max is going to exploit that to punish you, isn't he? Yeah, he's he's remarkably on point. Uh, or, or everybody's just willingly able to be creeped out by skeletons, whether they're wearing mortarboards or not. But, yeah, all, all of the... All of the big hitters are there. There are giant scorpions, there's a dragon, sharks, um, and the outside world. Um, sort of phantom knights, fire ants in a very memorable episode. Um, and it's one of my favourites, um, giant shoes. Chasing, <laughs> the giant, sh- <laughs> the chasing giant a woman, shoes. Chasing a large woman who can really only be described herself as well-heeled. Yes. <laughs> but, uh, the, these shoes have teeth, <laughs> so... Yeah, it's a charming little interlude in the middle of the book where a rather obnoxious, uh, rich, large lady in a fur coat abuses a, the member of staff working in the shoe department. And then, as you say, she gets um, poetic justice is meted out on her by Max. Yes. <laughs> on the 13th floor, yes. no less. Yeah, she, she gets downtrodden. <laughs> um, it, it's, it's almost a callback to the, to the early days. Um, and, and it was a nice wee breather. Yes. Yeah, and, and and I can't overlook the uh, the Kripke uh, KGB agent is is buried alive, of course, which was no creepy crawly, but we'll throw in some worms to 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 double down, and of course Max throws even more in the because these are worms that have eyes and legs. I don't know what kind of worm that makes it, but it does the trick. I'm going to say it makes them extremely frightening and disturbing worms. <laughs> <laughs> um, a memorably creepy moment in this book yeah absolutely we'll come possibly be coming back to some of those pages later i think um okay so i think if i'm right peter in the last volume was when the change over from scream to eagle happened because scream as we remember famously short-lived because of a uh, industrial action um, <clears throat> so it was folded into Eagle, which of course your specialist subject. And but Wagner and Grant carry on doing the writing. Uh, although I think, as you said last time, were they writing everything at the time? In in Eagle, they were writing an awful lot. But for this volume, we're sort of we're still within Eagle's um, head hunting days. So it's it's collected Tiger. Which in fact, it, it collected Tiger. In the last volume, we, we had a wee sort of breakaway with Max welcoming Tiger's poor readers into the uh, into the pages of Eagle. Um, but uh, it's interesting to sort of see who the who the the chief writer is during this volume, and and I would argue that it's it's Barry Tomlinson. 
Oh, really? Oh, yeah. right. Yeah, so he, by 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 dint of Tiger being merged with Eagle, we have Billy's Boots, of course. And although he's not written that, but I'm sure it's a, it's a favourite of his. But certainly Death Wish. Uh, and he's also writing on Dan Dare. Whereas... Um, Wagner and Grant have sort of retired somewhat to uh, to Doomlord, which has been there, of course, from day one. That's Alan Grant's. Um, John Wagner's writing a uh, a long form strip about a dog called um, called Shadow, uh, and he's also writing for Computer Warrior, which is uh, another much loved series from Eagle. Essentially, a kid every week um, enters. A computer virtual world, would you believe? But this one, uh, based on the video games of the time, so there's a real sort of tie into to what was going to be on your home computer that week, or what was going to be available from the high street. Here's a comic strip adventure about it. It's a different comic, <laughs> right? The uh, the 1986 Eagle, it really is. So, uh, it, but it's very much in our future. So. Yes, of course. This is slightly ahead of you still on Where Eagles Dare, isn't it? Mm. Yeah, well, in fact, we're only about two episodes away from, from Scream being merged with Eagles, so we're catching up. But, oh, uh, fantastic. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Our pace is somewhat off at the moment. <laughs> Apologies. I, like, so, I mean, talking about the writers, I noted in our notes, in our research that we did together beforehand, that uh, Wagner and Grant, of course, at 85, 86, they're deep into Dread and Strontium Dog. Alan's doing, uh, sorry, John's doing Robo Hunter. And I guess in a year or two, they're going to be also working on Batman as well. Um, yes. Predominantly Alan yeah. for that one. Yeah, and, and Anderson, of course. Um, oh, yes. Uh, is course. becoming a, a, a much more major character in, uh, in the prog. So th- there, I was. Th- Sort of doing a little bit of mental lining up and thought, yeah, that that sort of fits. We've we've sort of gone through City of the Damned and then into the the, the democracy stories and 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 everything. That's that's going to keep them busy. Plus, as you say, everything that's going on in in Strontium Dog, which is you know a, a, a heck of a a heck of a run. Incredibly prolific uh, partnership. Um, but uh, talking about prolific, let's turn to Jose Ortiz, who we admired mm. greatly last time. Now, I wondered, um, I'll get one thing out of the way quickly, and one of my errors, which was I thought that the Eagle had better paper than Scream in 2008 at this point. But you tell me that's, that had started to slip backwards as well. Is that right? Yeah, sadly, around about issue 76 or so, Eagle succumb to the the letterpress movement so it used to be the offset of which um supported the photo strips which started eagle the new eagle very well and they were beautiful for um for ortiz's painted work but with the letter set um it's it's your it's your 2018 paper sadly and not your star right. paper um nevertheless um ortiz's style works for that his um his balance of black and white i think it, it does not suffer at all uh, unlike i would argue some artists um, um had had a bit of a had a bit more of a, a, an awkward transition so and i i think i also mentioned i'd been reading david roach's masters of spanish comic book art and reading about jose oh, ortiz yeah. um what a fantastic career you know started out i gather from winning a competition um as it says in the back of this book when he was 16 
and then you know worked from 1951 right up to not long before his death in 2013. Mm. Um, we talked, I think, last time a little bit about his work on the Warren titles, Eerie and Creepy and Vampirella and all that. Um, but again, just so prolific. And he was doing a couple of other strips for the Eagle at this time as well, I think, was he? Well, he, he'd started off uh, with the, right from um, Eagle issue one with the Tower King, and then th- that was a sort of a future Mad Max-style story, then to the House of Damon, which is very much uh, uh, beloved and well-remembered along the style with the 13th floor news team. Um, which for a while was also illustrated by Phil Gascoigne, whose work appears in this uh, volume as well. And and then um, essentially when news teams retired in Eagle, that's when the screen merger appears. And uh, and then we're, we're pretty much all these all the way through to the end of the 13th floor. I think he, he doesn't get a lot of release. <laughs> right. From, uh, no. from, from, from Ernie's claws. So it's black and white art. It is wonderfully atmospheric again. If you want somebody to draw all these horrors from the 13th floor, Hosey Ortiz seems to be the perfect choice for them. I know last Mm. time we had great fun with the character whose neck was stretched in a sort of um, (laughs) hammer horror sort of execution type sequence. But here, all those dragons and beasties and uh, the ordeals of Oberon Hedges and the other MI5 agents. Um, it's just terrific and gripping atmospheric stuff, isn't it? Yeah, and yet he doesn't sort of, he doesn't also shirk with, with drawing some great caricatures of the the of, of the people he's, he's dealing with as well. I mean, Gwyn, Gwyn is no Jerry from, from the first volume, but he's still quite got quite an animated face and, and the customers, particularly the pushy customers, are all lovely grotesques. But yeah, it's the monsters you come for, for Ortiz. <laughs> and uh, he'll give you plenty. He does. And as I think, you know, uh, his faces and his hair, we said last time, were great. But yeah, monsters and beasties and the horrors, just wonderful stuff. I, I Particularly, I liked Oberon Hedges as a character. <laughs> um, it was, it's a lovely arc. as, a, as Yes. Uh, sorry, sorry, you said hacking. I was going to say hacking through the jungle with uh, Mini Max on his belt um, is tremendous. Yeah, he ends up quite ripped, <laughs> which, is, <laughs> which is admirable for a man. I'm, I'm assuming of 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 uh, you know a, a reasonable age. Um, I, I like that arc. It really it recalls um, one of the stories in, in Volume One, which I really liked, which is about Cheesy, the um, the graffiti vandal, who's just this snot nosed kid that 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 Max puts into a, a horrific sort of skyscraper-filled 13th floor to sort of teach him a lesson, but in doing so, improves Cheesy and, 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 and see, makes him, allows him to see his potential. And this is what I see with, um, with Auburn as well. He gives a man who could um, very easily be sort of pushing pencils into an early retirement a chance to, to get a second wind, and he comes out smiling, which is, which is lovely. <laughs> It gets a promotion at the end, so very satisfying. It is. It's a nice arc. Oberon Hedge, Hedge's special agent. Um, yeah, I could actually, I could actually take a comic about him. I think, particularly drawn by Jose Ortiz. Oh yeah, that the pages where he's trying to fight his way out of Max's thirteenth floor, uh, and and there's an awful lot of there, there are you know, flying roundhouse kicks and. 
there's an axe to the to the screen and sledgehammers through doors and things. He's he's a real man of action. So I like that element of the strip as well. Uh, that that we're not only sort of getting you know phantoms and creepy crawlies, but uh, Ortiz gets a chance to actually sort of really get into some action scenes. He does it well. No, lovely use of um, negative space, and uh, and the strip breathes. And it's um, I'll mention uh, on the front cover. There's some sort of like images taken from some of the pages that are uh, sampled on the front cover. I, I know last time we were particularly taken with the little sort of demonic bowler hat wearing imps. This time we've got on the front cover the miniature robots. As you say, there's a skeleton mm. wearing a mortar board. There's the memorable sequence of a bank robber wearing a rather strange bunny. Um, mask, a rabbit mask, a bit like um, almost like that demonic Frank character from Donnie Darko. But the oh. one that really, <laughs> the one that really takes me is the sort of enforcers, the armored enforcers, the helmeted mm. enforcers who show up in the MI5 training sequence. Um, the helmet. <laughs> they Peter. look familiar. They, they, they look do, familiar, don't they, Eamon? Yes. <laughs> I can't quite place it. I'll just say they look dreadfully familiar. Dreadfully <laughs> familiar, those helmets with the cross pieces across the nose and the eyes, although this time we can see the eyes. Um, yes. I wonder whose idea that was to put those distinctive helmets on the creatures. I, I'm not privy enough to, to have seen a, a John Wagner or Alan Grant script, so I don't know whether they write little instructions to their artists to please draw the enforcers looking extremely like a Mega City One judge. But by crikey, he, he does it. He does. <laughs> but they, they look terrifying. They look like, I, I think I think you've mentioned, they look a bit like sort of special judicial squad, the SJS judges. Um, but of course, their teeth have got to be filed, and yes, <laughs> they've got pikes, <laughs> and you wouldn't want to meet them in a dark alley. Not at all. And they've got some sort of strange chest console, a bit like Darth Vader's as well. They, yes. they tick all the boxes, don't they? Yeah, yeah, they're probably cyborgs, and fair enough. Why not? Yeah, uh, it, it brings to mind that, that Ortiz only did one dread strip a little way after this, five one seven, which is Night of the Ripper. So um, I hope that this uh, strip and the Ripper strip got it out of his system. But he, uh, for pretty much only two pages of action with these guys, he absolutely milks it. They're they're great. Yeah. So I don't think we can say enough about Ortiz's art. It's just glorious, Um, very atmospheric. Um, I did mention that, you know, probably because I've been reading David Roach's book, that the sort of use of shadow and light, uh, as you say, negative space in a way, to illustrate some of these nightmares is just wonderful and very memorable stuff. Um, I think, again, just correct one of my own errors. I always had the idea that the Spanish artists were cheaper, but I think David Roach is quite clear that it wasn't they were cheap, it was just that they were so talented and so quick. But even so, this artwork flying across the channel um, every week, you know, to Dave Hunt and Barry Tomlinson, um, goodness. You know. his, his output is incredible, and, and this is all you know, presumably before um, computer layout, and he's certainly got no, no you know, graphic tools to, to help him with the compositing. It's just all there on the paper. Um, yeah, my, my mind's boggled. 
Absolutely fantastic. So buy the book for Hosey Ortiz's art. But let's mention two other artists because at the back of the book we have stories from a Scream holiday special and an Eagle holiday special with art by um, Phil Gascoigne for Scream and then Rex Archer for Eagle. What did you make of those two episodes at the back? Um, I think I have a favourite of the two. And um, and in the spirit of admitting where you get things wrong, I think um, more than... Once I've uh, I've called poor Phil Gascoigne uh, Paul Gascoigne uh, in, in where he was dead. It's a very very important distinction. Um, Phil Gascoigne, as I mentioned, has sort of subbed uh, for Ortiz on News Team, which is probably not a strip that gets a lot of um, uh, a lot of glow and columns uh, for Eagle, but he does a pretty good likeness for um, for Ortiz's work, and he's a he's a good fit. Um, this story is, yeah, it's a one and done. It's got some pretty memorable monsters, sort of, um, well, it's more worms again, <laughs> with, with a sort of a, an eye on a tentacle. Yes. Um, and, and very much along the lines of what you'd be getting out of Scream, I think. Um, Rex Archer is our, our artist for Crow Street Cromp, which is the, um, the, the Grange Hill type strip. Which oh, yes. For, yeah. Yeah. Quite a while in Eagle. Um, and I imagine he's probably still with the, the comic with this um, particular story. And yeah, it's, it's fine. It's a, it's a different contrast. How's that? It's a welcome contrast. Uh, he does some very nice, um, ghoulish, um, undertakers or grave diggers. And he acquits himself with Max, but I think I prefer Phil Gascoigne's work. It's just, uh, yes, it's more familiar. Yeah. How about you? Or the young Paul Gascoigne, who was presumably in the youth team at this stage, but still doing the comic work. Um, <laughs> well, well we, we've already covered how, um, how prolific these guys are, haven't we? Yes. Uh, Phil Gascoigne, I think, is, as you say, does a very good Jose Ortiz, I think it is. Rex Archer, um, I found, yeah, it, it was different. Um, mm. Not quite my thing, although, as you say, he does quite a nice Count Dracula as well, doesn't he? Um yeah. Okay, so those are at the back of the book. Towards the back of the book, of course, Max sort of also gets a bit bored of spying and the spy game, and he the location changes yet again, doesn't it? Well, yes. Um, as as we've sort of said, he he does get bored, and I think there's an element of the bored. You know, I guess the bored immortal with Max. He he needs he needs stimulation, but but it seems that you know even going out into the broad world's not enough. And Gwyn hits on it um, that Max is actually homesick. So they contrive to get him back to Maxwell Towers, which is interesting because it really sort of presents Max at his best. He, he is He's happy to be back. And I think once the, the residents know that he's not going to sort of send them all upstairs and quietly off them, that they're happy for him to be back as well. And it seems that maybe what Max doesn't need is a big big world to control but a small one where he knows everybody and looks out of them 24-7 rather than a sort of a 9-5 to shop routine and we're back into the swim of things <laughs> it's uh, it's square one Really? And talking about Max taking on other roles because Dave Hunt's edi- you know, editorial at the start tells us that Max at some point becomes the editor of Eagle is that right? <laughs> Yeah, well, why not? Because he's never really had a a, a, a character editor. I, I, I know that's a very 
sort of 70s IPC thing to do. But it was always Dave Hunt from day one with the new Eagle, with um, Barry Tomlinson and Ian Rimmer occasionally sort of pitching in. Um, but now we've got this fully-fledged character that, that clearly is, is very popular in the pages, asserting his authority. And it's it's wonderful. I don't think it's ever really intrusive. I mean, Max announces competitions and pitches in occasionally as an editor, but uh, with his editorial. But but that's you know, what's in a name? <laughs> uh, the multi-talented Max who can run a a, uh, a big department store, MI Five, Maxwell Tower, and the New Eagle all at the same time. Was there ever any doubt? Yep. Yeah. How many uh, how many different calculations could his processor carry out at one time? <laughs> <laughs> well, now he's got many Macs. You know, the, the the sky's the limit. He's extended, yes, absolutely, and his integrated function chip has, as ever, allowed him to become uh, sentient and to control the thirteenth floor. Um, I know. Last time, as I say, we really enjoyed the the stretched neck episode. What were your favourites in this volume, Peter? Yeah, I uh, favorite episodes again I sort of come back to um to Auburn Hedges and his um his story arc. I guess if I had to pick a second favorite, it's actually back in Maxwell Towers with the nasty Mr. Sugden who's um a classic Maxwell Towers wrong and he's just well not to put too point finer point on it he's a he's an ebenezer scrooge character so um max gives him the scrooge treatment and creates his own christmas carol story um and it allows ortiz to go full dickensian and it's it's lovely yes one individual page of it instead of sort of hammer horror we get as you say dickensian horrors this time and it's Mm. wonderful isn't it yes um He, um he 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 Mr. Sugden sort of barks about a neighbour's budgie, and so the, the Christmas turkey, once the, it's sort of removed from the, uh, you know, un- unveiled, it's it's this budgie he has to carve up for his um for his Cratchit family. <laughs> Mr. Sugden is so lacking in Christmas spirit, he can spend his Christmas on my thirteenth floor, says Max. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely lovely. And of course then you get the Dickensian snow snowy London, but it's populated of course by um zombie like skeletons uh to haunt Mr. Sugden. Um Sugden by name, Scrooge by nature. Yeah. They're cutting back every now and then during the story to a, a reform school, which is also on the thirteenth floor where Max has put a couple of sort of unruly teens and they're going through a full on full deportment. Um with uh, various skeletal masters, <laughs> all 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 with mortarboards and canes, um, so he he is multitasking once again. But it, it makes for a really nice sort of vignette um, combined. Um, absolutely wonderful, all with Ortiz's great characters, faces, the hair, and then of course the memorable monsters. Uh, like yourself, I enjoyed Auburn Hedge's adventures. For some reason, I was rather taken with the uh, the rabbit-faced burglar who <laughs> robs banks. Um, just a bizarre sequence. Um, but there's so many great moments in this second volume. I was surprised, actually, that it's still 
kept up my attention from the first volume. Uh, I guess changing the locale and the personalities a bit helped at that as well. But it is, it is just tremendous fun throughout the whole thing, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. You won't, you won't get bored. Um, and I had, when I did initially flip through it, I, I didn't really make the distinction between Gwyn and um, and Auburn and I thought, oh, where's this going? And oh, he's a spy now. I'm not really sure about this, but. I didn't notice that when I was reading it. It was it was it was pure belter. It was it was great. And I'm sort of going to ask you a question. I I've talked about with Conrad from Space Spinner 2000, which is you know mm. this was a comic designed to entertain and scare and creep out kids in the 80s. Is it? I mean, why is it still sort of interesting and fascinating to us grown-up fans? that you can go back to it and still have such a great time. How does it work? I think a lot of it has to be this wonderful combination of of the black humour of Wagner and Grant. And they're, as we've said, they're at the top of their game. And even in, even in Eagle, they've produced some memorable, humorous and dark stories, whether it's Alan Grant in The House of Damon or John Wagner writing Joe Soap, um, which is a sort of, Terrible, um, out of out of luck every week. Um, Want to be private private detective? Um, with the thirteenth floor, they can bring their, that that humour and that grimness, and they've got the perfect partner in Ortiz. So you can enjoy it on both levels. You can you can appreciate the artwork, which never lets up, and you've got a story which will occasionally um, pull the rug, the rug out from underneath your feet and keep you entertained. I, th- I think it's timeless, the 13th floor. Weirdly enough, the technology isn't. <laughs> it's, it is very 1980s or the future <laughs> of 1980s. But that doesn't matter. You know, it's, it's, um, you know we're, we're living in an age where we can look back at um, Dred's future tech as well and say, well, that's lovely. No one's got a cell phone anywhere in, in Mega City 1, but you go with it. Yeah. I, I have to say, um, with uh, with the thirteenth floor, I think uh, I don't know whether Dave Hunt really um, mentions it specifically, but his editorial of the volume is is quite telling, where he sort of says that you know Eagle was starting to enter the doldrums, and then Scream came along, and it was almost like the Scream, t- the two Scream stories, Monster and Thirteenth Floor, absolutely gave Eagle a, a shot in the arm, and it seems from reading ahead into 1986 that the 13th floor will continue to be a really important strip in Eagle because of the strength of its creators. It did, as you say, it did boost sales, didn't it? It sort of gave Eagle a shot in the arm and uh, kept it going, thank goodness. Hmm. Yeah. Okay, Peter, what about Grail pages? Uh, Choose a couple of pages of uh, artwork, and there are some covers in the back of the book as well, aren't there? We have to mention an Ian Kennedy wraparound cover. Yes. uh, Which is, um, which is, is, is lovely. Again, it's a, it's an alternative to, to Jose Ortiz. I think Ian Kennedy's bug eyed aliens will always be, you know, species of themselves, but uh, it's always nice to sort of see him stretching beyond the, the, the Dan Deere and the commando comic. Yeah. um, uh, Area, which he specializes in so well. Um, to bring us something a little bit horrific at the same time. Great stuff. I'll be asking you about Ian Kennedy in a moment, but let's yeah. go back to the uh, the main artwork. Yeah. 
So in terms of Grail pages, I had to I had to outsource this, and uh, I consulted my son, who was now of eagle reading age, and he pitched in with um, pages thirteen to fifteen, which are Max's retro robots. So Max, just to uh, to, to flash back to him investigating MI5's dungeons in Pringles. Um, he can't go into certain areas, so he goes into the ro- to the toy department and finds some radio-controlled robots, um, gets them to carry a video camera, because it's the 80s, and um, we have this lovely sort of Toy Story-ish adventure with them sort of clambering over things and making human pyramids and until they all run out of battery and it's just sort of flop. <laughs> I love the design of them. They're very, as I say, very retro, very clunky. They're great, aren't they? Yes, the robots are fantastic. And so for me, oh man, that was really difficult. I, I think I'd have to settle on Auburn again. And it's it's the it's pages 64, 65. So he's in the phantom uh, zone, I guess, uh, of, of the 13th floor. He's um, been snapped up by a dragon, which is then shot up by fighter jets. Um, he lands in a desert, um, can't move, presumably broken something, and then is nearly smothered by fire ants. And all the while, <laughs> a rock about uh, less than a meter away is uh, is right next to him, uh, and Max is sitting on it, just watching it, enjoying the show. It's just delicious. <laughs> the panel of Auberon Hedge's face being covered with the ants and his wild staring eyes, his mouth is open and the ants are literally crawling into his mouth. It's just, it is the stuff of nightmares, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. They, they know where to push those buttons. Are you going to tell me that you've chosen similar pages? Again? I am, yes. I'm going to take, <laughs> I'm going to take probably, I should think, pages 39 and 40, um, yeah. particularly page 39, uh, which is the Russian agent being tormented by Max and he is being attacked by these ants. Um, and then on the next page is the title page of the next episode and you get a very similar image of these weird worms sorry yeah. it's the worms isn't it the worms are crawling over his face <laughs> and it is uh it's nightmare fuel um, <laughs> absolutely he's buried alive yeah and, and the two agents uh, smith and jones of course who've um buried uh, kripka there's a wee flashback to them in the toy department because max has uh hypnotized them into sort of a a second childhood and they're playing with the same robots oh yes there's the robots <laughs> Uh, so that is wonderful as well yeah so i will post all these pages by jose ortiz uh, and hopefully some of the covers as well when this episode comes out um just great stuff such rollicking fun i mean do get you know get a copy of the 13th floor which is there's the hardback is 19.99 still available paperback 14.99 and you've got the 9.99 digital um and it's all stunning stuff isn't it yeah um yeah, about fourteen ninety nine for the digital and Pacific pesos, but still a fantastic deal. And we'll just mention that volume three is due later this year, and I know that's sort of well ahead of where Eagles Dare. But um, will you be getting the third volume? Oh, um, easily. Uh, that will be presumably where everything sort of wraps up, and there's an end to, to Maxwell Towers. Of course, there's no end to Max, as we know. Um, he's reappears in the the vigilant and. Um, he reappears in the Scream and Misty holiday specials. So he has continued, yes. 
yeah. he endures. His software has been updated, presumably, but he's, uh, yeah, he is still going, thank goodness. Yeah. Great stuff, Peter. So let's turn to guest projects. We'll move on from the 13th floor and go to Where Eagles Dare and the Eagle's Nest. Um, yourself and David still cracking on with the project. That's right, yep. And where have you got to at the moment? Yeah, so we are... Oh. I think we're around about issue 130. So as I say, we're about eight issues away from Scream joining Eagle. Uh, We've just had the debut of a new story um, called Bloodfang, which is another John Wagner um, mini epic. It's a dinosaur story. It's sort of like flesh, but told from the perspective of the dinosaurs um, with none of that pesky time travel. And uh, yeah, things are just cracking along. I think Eagle's sort of found its second its second life as a uh, as an adventure story with secret agents and you know boys adventures uh this news team is is about to finish crow street comp is about to finish and there's another story again by joe and wagner which really i think it's a tragedy because of the um the whole rights issue with rebellion and the dandia corporation that hasn't been collected and that's the fists of danny pike Oh, right. Yeah, so John M. Burns um, illustrating um, essentially this, the story of a, uh, of a Liverpoolian boxer um, and his, uh, his pitch at the, the world title fight. And uh, I'm really surprised that um, it's absolutely held my attention. So they're good days, and they're about to get a whole lot more interesting with, with, with Scream joining us. You're just about to, as you say, get Scream on board and pick up some extra stories. That's right. So 13th Floor and Monster, um, which um, hopefully someone will um, will pick up for Mega City Book Club. I don't think that's uh, that's one that we've done yet. Uh, I think we did do it, actually, quite a while ago with Alex Frith. We did Monster, yes. Oh, I beg your pardon. That's all right. No, yeah. it's okay. Um, but yes, and of course, as you say, Eagle picks up a number of other comics as it goes along. And so some stories that we've covered elsewhere on the pod, like Death Wish, Billy's Boots, even there's a bit of Charlie's War turns up later on, I think. Is that right? Yeah, in the, in the, the dying days of Eagle, I guess, it becomes a bit of a reprint. Um, right. Oh, I see. So, yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> Uncomfortable truth, Simon. Um uh, Charlie's War, Ant Wars, um, which of course Conrad has covered, and uh, no, no, that was Fox. Fox that was Fox. Ant-Wars. Yes, yeah. Uh, uh, Conrad covered Mark One, which also gets uh, reprinted in Eagle. Um, but one of the ones we should also mention is One Eye Jack. Oh yes, okay. Which which was a valiant title, got picked up by Eagle much further along, and is of course you know brought to you again by John Wagner with um. Who could write anything, and yeah, <laughs> and probably yeah. and was writing everything. Well, he was, and, and and so the story goes, was sort of flexing his pre-dread muscles with this um, hard-boiled New York cop. Yeah, shoot, shoot first and ask questions later. And so that we can find where Eagles Dare at sofageddon.wordpress.com. And um, I know you've had another friend of the pod. You've had Mr. Jim Moon on recently. Was he doing some voices for a Scream uh, special? 
Yes, indeed. Uh, so, so Jim, who uh, of course uh, covered cover Dracula from Scream uh, for you, was the voice of Ghastly McNasty when we were doing our our limited Scream and Scream Again run. Um, Dave and I rather cheekily decided that uh, as Space Spinner 2000 were covering action, we'd better get into uh, covering Scream before somebody else did in the uh, in, in the podcasting world. We've pretty much come to the end of that. We may do the odd um, annual along the way. And um, we had Jim along, um, not only as the voice of Ghastly, but as a guest in an episode. And it was it was lovely. Um, Jim, it must be stated, was an early influence for both Dave and I with his excellent Hypnogoria podcast. So it was an honour and a treat. Fantastic stuff. And all this can be found, of course, in the Where Eagles Dare feed uh, in your podcatcher or on the website. And the, the link will be in the show notes for this episode as well. And also, recently, you've cropped up somewhere else, Peter, because uh, the Lawless Convention, like many other conventions, went digital and virtual this year. Um, and you were doing a panel with the aforementioned Philip Vaughan, and you got to n- interview two notables, didn't you? We did. <laughs> we did. We were we were contacted by a, a, a mutual friend uh, uh, who directed us to Lawless, and uh, would we be interested in providing something sort of 2080 creator-related? Um, and... Um, uh, Dave wasn't able to do it, my co-host, um, with Where Eagles Dare, but um, Philip was fortunately uh, not only available, but really keen. And he brought um, with him his um, previous working relationship with both Pat Mills and Ian Kennedy. He worked with them on the Great War Dundee comic and also through his um, through his academic course. So it was... Again, a pleasure and an absolute honour to, to to speak to the gentlemen on their part in the uh, the revised Dan Deere strip for the New Eagle. Uh, and it was fantastic. It was just absolutely wonderful. And to get, I think you were, or Philip was possibly, was putting up some of the covers that Ian did, of course, um, which are just works of the purest art. Um, uh, it's just gorgeous stuff. And it was a great interview you got to do with them both. I was, um, I just about had lockjaw at the end from my grinning. Right. <laughs> That's, um, it was it, it was lovely that the, the both uh, both of our guests were were absolute gentlemen, and I don't think they'd um, sort of come together very much before, um, and they'd and they'd certainly not talked about Dan Deere before. It, it really did appear that um, this was the first time that Pat had seen Ian Kennedy's artwork of of his run on Deere for quite a while. So his reactions seemed to be very immediate and very. Uh, very candid, and they were absolute gold. I mean, Pat is, of course, a legend, and as you say, his wonderful reactions to seeing some of that artwork that he hadn't seen in decades uh, was just fantastic. And, of course, you know, Pat, um, not I suppose, not too difficult to interview because he, he will talk about all this stuff and he's such a font of knowledge and opinion on it all. And then Ian Kennedy, a national treasure... Mm. I'm not. I'm not particularly keen on the honor system, Peter. But I think I think Ian Kennedy should be knighted. I think absolutely, <laughs> absolutely, and national treasure. But if 
you know, if you've had the fortune to meet Ian Kennedy at a convention, you'll know that he is, of course, lovely, but he's quite deaf. And I did wonder how you got round the technicals of doing a sort of virtual interview with him. Uh, that was sheer luck, Eamon. <laughs> right. <laughs> I think I think Ian is... Uh, he, he was either... Ian is... is um, uh, was was clever enough to do it, or or, or I suspect maybe Philip um, had some um, had some work in it as well. But Ian pretty much was 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 sat um, with us um, in, in the virtual space, of course. But he had a speaker at either and at either side of him, and he by his by his admission, he said he was able to hear us loud and clear. If anybody was breaking up, it was probably me coming from the other side of the world because uh, you know Pat was um, at his home. Um, in uh, in Spain, Ian and uh, Philip, um, some what, further north of the border, and uh, and here's me shouting from um, from Wellington. But <laughs> we got through. So, as you say, it was probably the grinning that caused the breakup in the feed from time to time, isn't it? You know, having yeah. getting the chance to talk to Ian Kennedy and Pat Mills at the same time about Dan Dare. Well, it doesn't get much better. And, of course, you can go to the Lawless um, website and see this full interview, um, the video of it. It is just tremendous. I would encourage anybody who has one of the excellent Mega City Book Club um, uh, coasters to maybe put it in the middle of the screen while they're watching because you really don't need to see, need to see my grinning face <laughs> for, uh, for a good hour. Um, but do enjoy the visuals otherwise. <laughs> It's great stuff, and I will put the link to that in the show notes for this as well because it's fantastic. What a what a you know what a treat to interview Ian and Pat. That must have been just wonderful. Oh, it's the highlight of the year so far. Absolutely, it was, I, I was pinching myself before and after. <laughs> fantastic stuff, Peter. Anything else you need to mention or want to mention in this section? Um. Well, really, I just wanted to take the opportunity to uh, to once again shout out and thank you uh, to, to to Philip for setting things up, but also broadly um, to uh, to a lot of uh, to a lot of heroes of of New Eagle's presence on the internet and, and out there still. Um, the thirteenth floor was initially collected by Hibernia Comics, so that's uh, David McDonald uh, aided with um, the excellent um, skills of Richard Pierce. Um, John Freeman and Tony Foster, who are, who are working with Down the Tubes and, and Comic Scene, and, and then Richard Chief, who's also been on Where Eagles Deal with his Boys Adventure blog, um, they are invaluable to us for, um, for filling in gaps for uh, not only the new Eagle, but sort of where the connection with the old Eagle is. Uh, and it was only um, actually reading that, um, that David Roach book, um, passage that um, that you mentioned, Eamon, that I that I understood that Jose Ortiz had, had worked on the original Eagle as well, and that was that's astonishing. It is, isn't it? Yes, I mean, what a career! But yeah, as you say, we are fortunate to have people like Philip and Tony and Richard uh, doing such great work to preserve the history of these uh, wonderful comics. Um, but as you said in the interview, what a great shame we cannot get a reprint of uh, the Ian Kennedy Dandare stories. I don't know what it's going to take um, short of a, of a huge crowdfunding exercise. In, in the interview, so to, to spoil one of my most exciting moments, was, uh, was Ian uh, saying that he'd, he'd willingly draw, or rather to the point, paint 
the uh, the last pages of the the epic that he did with um, Pat Mills, which unfortunately um, crossed that aforementioned letterhead uh, or letterpress, I should say, um, style and eagle. So what we'd initially been absolutely enjoying with his watercolor art suddenly becomes this somewhat limited color line art work in in, in the uh, in the newsprint era, and it's a great shame. Um, but really encouraging that that we that we have Ian so keen to do it. We just need all the planets to align. Yes, please. Oh, please, <laughs> please, somebody make it happen. Yeah. Uh, in 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 the meantime, as I say, with these with these um, with these wonderful uh, creators and and researchers, uh, they're they're ensuring that I think um, I believe a, a growing recognition that Eagle comic the new eagle is possibly one of the last boys adventure comics around where, where 2018 was really coming into its own as an adult magazine eagle stuck to a junior readership and um and to have that being covered and uncovered is 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 wonderful fantastic work and fantastic work by yourself and david keeping it going at where eagles dare as well to join and get on board uh, visit the eagle's nest as you say <laughs> stay away from the basement stay away from the spooky basement of uh, king's reach tower yes absolutely and of course stay away from the 13th floor if you can possibly avoid it uh, <laughs> max is prone to finding your worst fears and then hosey or tizzing them yeah Peter, thank you so much for giving up your time. It's Sunday morning here. It's Sunday evening with you. Um, as I say, it's just been great fun. And uh, I look forward to your next return visit to the book club and to the continuing adventures of Where Eagles Dare. Thank you very much. Thank you, Eamon. An honour and a pleasure. And thank you to everyone for listening to Megacity Book Club. As ever, find all the links at megacitybookclub.com, including links to Peter's podcast and the interview with Pat and Ian Kennedy. Follow the podcast on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, Spotify, and the 2080 forums, or get in touch by emailing mcbcpodcast at gmail.com. And until next time, when we're passing judgment on another great book, it's goodbye from me and from the Eagle's Nest. It's goodbye from me. 